Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 14. And again, your service guide, there is an outline there for you to take notes this morning, and there are also discussion questions. I encourage you to make use of both of those. Luke chapter 14 is where we are this morning, and continuing on our study of the, the, gospel, the gospel of Luke. We're looking at the first 24 verses today, and I want to go ahead and just read all the way through this. Uh, so we can get a sense of what's going on before we dive in. But as you all know, I like to preach for a really, really long time. So let's just go ahead and stand one final time as we read the Word. Let's stand together. We are the family of God, the people of God, standing together under the Word of God. So follow along as we read these inspired words of Scripture again. Luke 14, verses 1 to 24. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, they watched him. Verse 2, and behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? They held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again on these things. Then he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any, of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say unto thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just." And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them, to test them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. This is the, the word of God. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. You may be seated. In any culture around the world, eating is a really big deal. It's about more than uh, nutrition or just a culinary experience. Eating is often about shared values. It is about shared fellowship. It's about friendship. It's about relationship. And that's why when you travel around the world, it's always a good idea to find out what the, what the proper etiquette is in the country you go to. In some countries, for example, if you, if you put salt on your food, it's major insult. If you eat all the food on the plate, it says, well, that wasn't really good enough. Or if you don't eat all the food, it could be insulting as well. It's good to know your, your culture, where you're going. Well, it's no different in Jesus' day. There is a set etiquette and a set uh, way that, that, that food is thought about. Far more importance was attached in Jesus' day to meals, to communal meals, than we would have today. See, we're, as a culture, sadly, and I would say tragically, okay with every family member ordering something different for delivery over Uber Eats, and then eating in silence as everybody just sort of scrolls through Facebook while the meal occurs. 
Listen, that would never, ever have happened in Jesus' day. Not just because they didn't have Uber Eats or cell phones, but because they believed that meals were about community and about fellowship, and table fellowship was a big deal. Who you ate with mattered, who you invited mattered, where people sat mattered, how the meal was, was laid out. All of that mattered. It could communicate either tremendous respect or disdain for the people you were with. All of that was determined by rigorous social custom. As we jump into Luke 14, what unites these 24 verses is this emphasis on eating and having dinner parties and banquets. The whole setting here in verse 1, Jesus is having sort of Sunday lunch. Well, it's actually Saturday, Sabbath day dinner at the house of a lead Pharisee, at the, lead, at the house of the bigwig, at the, the house of the guy who was the most important guy in town. And he uses this as an opportunity to talk about kingdom etiquette. Hey, there was the etiquette of Jesus' day and Jesus' culture that was based on reciprocity. You do something nice for me, I'll do something nice for you. You invite me over for dinner, I'll invite you over for dinner. So you would invite people over for dinner who you wanted in turn to invite you into dinner. It was all about this, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And Jesus brings a sledgehammer against those cultural assumptions. In verses 7 to 11, he addresses the, the guests at the dinner. He says, hey, when you come, don't be clamoring for the best seats. That's what everybody would do. Instead, sit in the lowest places. There's a spiritual lesson, he says. You voluntarily humble yourself. In God's presence, you'll be exalted. You exalt yourself in God's presence, you'll be humbled, just as you could be embarrassed at a dinner guest if you sit in the wrong place and get the boot. Then in verses 12 to 14, he addresses the host. He says, when you're making your guest list, don't just be making the guest list based on who's going to make you look good. Practice genuine hospitality. Now, at the heart of this is verse 15. Someone understands what Jesus is saying. He says, blessed is the one who's going to eat meat, have bread in the, in the kingdom of God. Behind this banquet, behind the, the Jewish understanding of feasting and banqueting was an understanding that the kingdom of God, the eternal state, what we would call heaven, is likened to a banquet. It's a feast. It's full of joy. And he said, man, that's going to be awesome for the people who go there. And then Jesus goes into this parable to say, hey, these people who got invited ahead of time, they didn't care. And so other people took their place. The Jews reject me and the Gentiles will take their place. What Jesus is calling them to as he addresses their sort of dining etiquette that was very self-serving, he's saying, I I'm calling you to something that's totally different. The Pharisees, yes, they practiced a form of hospitality that was self-serving, that was hypocritical, that was driven by the values of pride and selfishness. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be one of my kingdom citizens, you need to practice kingdom hospitality. Just as you have been invited into God's banquet hall, you should invite others into your home. Kingdom hospitality is radically different than the sham hospitality practiced by the Pharisees. It's radically different than this hospitality driven by nefarious, self-serving, self-promoting motives. Jesus calls you and me to kingdom hospitality. Now, when I say kingdom hospitality, I'm not just using the, the word kingdom as a cool adjective. Everybody's got like kingdom education and kingdom this and kingdom that and it, to the point where it means nothing. Here's what I mean by that. I mean hospitality that is consciously and deliberately modeled on God's kingdom. To put it more simply, we should treat other people in our hospitality the way that God has treated us. So he says, come, he's welcomed us, so we should welcome others. We should welcome people into our home the way that God has welcomed us into his. That's what verses 15 to 24 are driving at. It's all about the gospel. Understand this as you and I practice hospitality. It is simply a dim reflection and a faint echo of the real thing. Our earthly hospitality is a reflection of heavenly hospitality, not, not, not the other way around. It's not that God's like, okay, all of those people, they do this banquet thing. Let me sort of make heaven like that. No, we do that because it's sort of a longing for what will be there in heaven. When you and I show hospitality, our imperfect, flawed, limited hospitality, we're like children tracing out a picture. We're modeling it on the real deal. So God is calling you and me to practice kingdom hospitality. So what does that look like? Well, let's walk through this text, and Jesus is going to, to, to give to us four truths about kingdom hospitality to show us as Christians living in the year 2022 how we should practice hospitality. So first truth is this. Kingdom hospitality values the unvalued. It values the unvalued. So we get the scene in verses 1 to 6. Jesus gets invited over on a Sabbath day to have dinner with a Pharisee. 
More than likely, he had preached that morning in the synagogue. And so this Pharisee invites Jesus over. Now, you might ask, what on earth is a Pharisee doing inviting Jesus over? Well, the Pharisees hate Jesus. They're out to get Jesus. Why invite Jesus over? I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them is to look good. Jesus is really popular after all. So it's going to make him look good to be hanging out with Jesus. That's an important thing to tuck away in our minds when we think about first century Jewish hospitality. It was driven by this idea of confirming social rank. So you would bring people over to dinner that you may or may not like just so you can be seen in public with them, right? That's sort of the point. Kind of like politicians, they'll go hang out. I'm in public with this guy. They may hate his guts, but hey, it's good for the ratings. That's how the Pharisees work. But I think the main reason is, look at the end of verse 1. They invite him over to eat bread on the Sabbath day, and they watched him. They're, they're looking for Jesus to commit some major faux pas or say something heretical. This is not the first time Jesus has had dinner with a Pharisee in the book of Luke. Luke gives us several different snapshots of Jesus having dinner with Pharisees, and every time it turns out as a very awkward meal. First time in Luke 7, the sinful woman comes up behind Jesus, begins washing his feet, and Jesus is like, you're judging her, aren't you? Oh, no, I'm not. And he, and he says, no, she's showing better hospitality to me than you are. Second time is in Luke 11. Jesus does not go through the special hand-washing rituals they have around meals. And they're, oh, whew, they're, they're, they're scandalized by that. And Jesus takes the opportunity to say, woe unto you. He calls out their legalism. This is the third time he has dinner with a Pharisee. And similarly, it's going to bring confrontation. Something else Luke does in the Gospel of Luke is he shows Jesus having meals uh, you know, not only having, showing, having meals with Pharisees, but shows Jesus doing healings on the Sabbath day. This really fires the Pharisees up. They're like, that's work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, you heretic. But he deliberately goes out of his way to heal on the Sabbath day to expose their flawed value system. So all of this, as you can imagine, is a really toxic mix. Having a meal with the Pharisees, they're always out, you know, you use the wrong fork kind of mentality, trying to nitpick what Jesus does. On a Sabbath day whether you're breaking our rules about the Sabbath day, Jesus, and they are watching him. And the sense of this in the Greek is they're actively ongoing, watching his every move, looking for a flaw. So as Jesus has, has lunch with them, look at verse 2. There was a certain man which had the dropsy. Now, we don't use the word dropsy. The word we would use today is edema. This is someone who has tremendous fluid retention in their body, and there is swelling that would be very painful. Now, modern medicine can, can give you treatment for that, but hey, first century, there's no relief for this. Here's someone probably undergoing some kind of kidney failure or liver disease, and they're just accumulating all of this fluid in their body and incredibly painful. Chances are their condition is terminal, right? If you've got liver, liver disease or kidney disease or even co uh, congestive heart failure in the first century, there's no treatment. So here's a man who is hideously swollen, who's always dying of thirst because his body is absorbing this water, and the more he drinks, the worse it gets. He would have been someone that the Pharisees, under normal circumstances, would have, well, keep him out. The sick people, they're obviously under God's judgment. And here he is. Look at verse 2. There was a certain man before him. Notice those words before him. Literally, right in front. They do the seating arrangements. They make sure this guy is sitting right across the table from Jesus. They know Jesus heals people. Jesus has compassion. We're going to set him up. This is a setup all the way where they're going to get Jesus on the Sabbath day at a dinner party with a person who's going to be healed, needs healing, and they're going to get Jesus to heal him so they can be, ha, further evidence that Jesus violates the Sabbath. By the way, nothing in the Old Testament said no healing on the Sabbath. That was one of their rules that they added to the Bible. You ever find yourself getting upset with someone for doing something that the Bible says nothing about? That's how the Pharisees behaved. So verse 3 Jesus answering, he says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, this is a question that is in their wheelhouse. And here they sit with their arms crossed. They, 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 this is what they did all day, is they parsed out what would be legal to do here and here, what constitutes work, and when does the Sabbath day begin and end. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Jesus puts the question right to them. Verse 4, they held their peace. So verse 4, they, they just completely ignore his question. Jesus then Simply took him, healed him, let him go. Now, we get this just brief, boom, 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 three verbs here to convey Jesus' healing. It's no work for Jesus, right? Their question, well, the no working on the Sabbath, Jesus is just like, watch me, boom, guy's healed, off he goes. With just a touch, with just a word, Jesus healed his damaged organs, stopped the swelling, and right there before their eyes, can you, you know what swelling looks like, you put ice on it, you take ibuprofen, a few hours later it looks, but no, instantaneous, 
complete, total healing that can be verified by everyone there. This is none of the, the sham stuff that Benny Hinn does or any of these guys who pretend to lengthen people's legs. No, this is the, the real thing that, that verified. He had this condition before, an actual medical condition, and he didn't after. No parlor trick, divine power is what this is. Verse 5, which of you shall have a donkey or an ox fall into a pit? Or, or some texts say we'll have a son or an ox who falls into a well. Okay, so the word here is a well. You, your, your kid falls into a well. We hear about that happening from time to time in other parts of the world. The extent that a parent will go to to rescue their child who is in that kind of danger. You don't care if it's a Sabbath day. You don't care what the rules are. You're going to save your kid, right? Jesus is saying, any one of you, if your child or if your ox, which would be the most expensive thing you own, your, your car has run into a ditch, you're going to get it out of the ditch, Right? You, you value these things. Now, this is basically what Jesus did back in Luke 13. If this sounds familiar, verses 10 to 17, he has the similar encounter. There's a woman in the synagogue who is bent over, who is tied up in a knot, and Jesus unties her. He, unloose, he looses her, and he says, you guys will untie your animals on the Sabbath day to get them water. Here's a guy who is drowning in fluid retention, and Jesus says, if someone is drowning in a well, you rescue them. What's he doing? He's calling out their hypocrisy, saying, Hey, you value your kids, right? You value your, your animals. You'll, you'll, you'll save them. Why are you taking issue with me saving someone who's in dire need on the Sabbath day? I don't care what day of the week it is. I'm going to heal this man. So verse 6, and they could not answer him. So in verse 4, they would not answer him because it's all about this ploy. Verse 6, now they cannot answer him. They've painted themselves into the proverbial corner by their attempt to get Jesus. It never works if you try to ambush Jesus as you read in the Gospels. He always exposes their hypocrisy and their duplicity where no one can say a word. They ignore his message. Now, here's the point about this hospitality. Pharisees invite Jesus over for a meal to try and set him up. They invite the man over with the, with the, the, the swelling to try to set Jesus up. They don't care about the man. Right? They're not inviting him. He's like, man, this poor guy, we've not ever had him over for a meal. Let, let's have him over. This is great for him to meet Jesus. This is not a, we really want Jesus to heal him because we've been praying for years for him to be healed in the synagogue services and it's not happened. This is great. No, they're not concerned about him. They do not value him at all. He's just a pawn. He's just someone they are using. He's someone who is completely unvalued to them, someone who they do not care about. And what does Jesus do? What does his hospitality look like? He values the very person that they devalue and society unvalues. That's what kingdom hospitality looks like. Jesus is modeling it for us here, even though he's not the one holding the, the party. He shows hospitality. By the way, what does hospitality mean? We often think hospitality is like you know, white tablecloths and you know, all the different forks laid out and, and all the, you know, it's all formal and stiff. Hospitality simply means this love of foreigners. Philozenia. Okay, we get the word xenophobia, foreigners, fear of foreigners. Philozenia is the, is the Greek word, a love of foreigners. Love of people you don't know. Love of people who are on the outside. Love of refugees. Love of immigrants. That's literally what the word would mean. And so hospitality, love of the stranger, love of the one who's on the outs, love of the one who is unvalued. That's kingdom hospitality. God has welcomed you and me and who were foreigners to his kingdom. Right, we were in the, we were in actually, we weren't just foreigners, we were in the opposition and he's welcomed us in. Kingdom hospitality is going to look like doing the same thing. It's going to value the unvalued. Kingdom hospitality is going to go to bat for the unborn, the most unvalued and unprotected members of our society. Kingdom hospitality will value the homeless. It will value the refugee. It will value the drug addict as someone who's made in the image of God but has had that image horribly marred and their dignity destroyed by an addiction, by a sinful enslavement. It will value the overlooked. Why? Because you and I, without Christ, are all of that and eternally worse. Without Christ, we have no eternal home. Without Christ, we have no refuge. Without Christ, we have no protection. Without Christ, we're enslaved to sin and we are abused by it. He's welcomed us. Are there people that you would look around and say, well, I would never have them into my home because of X, Y, or Z. I wouldn't want them to live in my neighborhood. Could it be that you have started to get a pharisaical hospitality rather than a kingdom hospitality? 
Other people, you say, I don't want them to move in or come to where I live because I'll feel threatened or endangered. Jesus would say move towards those people rather than throw up barriers to them. He values the unvalued. But let me give you a second quality of kingdom hospitality. Kingdom hospitality, it not only values the unvalued, but number two, it honors the humble. It honors the humble. So verses 7 to 11, I kind of picture verses 1 to 6 is sort of before the meal is served. People are just kind of chit-chatting, eating hors d'oeuvres, so to speak, before the meal starts. Verse 7 now, he put forth a parable to those who were bidden, those who had been invited. Now that language of invited, the, the word of being, it's even the word called, it's a theologically freighted word in other passages, shows up numerous times in this passage, this idea of invitations being sent and the ones giving the invitation. So, okay, the people who were invited to dinner, this was not just a, a last minute, hey, let's have Jesus over, we've got a couple extra hot dogs in the freezer for him, kosher hot dogs because this is ancient Palestine. Th- this was a formal dinner, and there were other people who had been invited. So notice verse 7, he puts forth a parable. What's a parable? It's a comparison. It's, it's sort of an everyday lesson, an every, everyday occurrence that he's going to draw spiritual, a spiritual lesson from. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, the chief seats. All right, so here's what's going on. This is kind of ironic to me. They thought they were watching Jesus, but Jesus is watching them. They thought they were going to teach Jesus, but Jesus teaches them. So the the watchers become the watched. It's just quite humorous. They think they're pulling one over on Jesus, and he's like, no, I really see what's going on. So he's watching as people come into the banquet hall. They're sort of trying to slide into the best seats. Now, we've got to understand something about the culture here. We picture a banquet like tables we all sit at. The way that they would set their tables up would be it would be a low table, just you know, a few inches high, maybe a foot or so high. And there would be these low couches arranged around it in a U shape, right? And at the bottom of the U would be the 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 number one couch. Each couch would have three people. You would sort of lay on your side, and the other person would be kind of laying right in front of you. Very intimate. This is not a let me order from the little screen in McDonald's and my food will come out and I won't have to talk to anyone. No, this is this is all about being close to people. So the, the center couch would have three people. The host would be in the middle. On his left would be the next important person. On the right would be the next important person after him. Then you would go to the left couch, and then the same thing, next important guy in the middle, and then on out left and right, and then on the other couch. And so where you sat would display what, where you were regarded in the social pecking order. So if you think, man, I'm actually a really important guy. I'm coming in, and I'm sitting down at the head table, so to speak. Jesus is watching this. As people come in, he's just sort of standing back, observing how people behave. He sees people sort of throwing the elbows, trying to just sort of slide into a seat on the couch to where, ha, I got the seat next to Jesus. Which, by the way, he was probably the guest of honor here, sitting left of the host. So he he tells this parable to these people who are seeking out the the chief places. He's going to call out their pride and say that God honors the humble. We get a contrast to humility that's going on here. So in this shame-honor society, rank and respect matter immensely. Where you sat, as one commentator said, is a public advertisement of your status. So if you get relegated not to the the bottom of the U, but over to the end of it, that shows that you're not important. So everyone's trying to get their position, their status to be recognized. So Jesus essentially paraphrases a proverb. Jump over with me to Proverbs 25, or just listen as I read Proverbs 25. He would have been steeped in the Old Testament. He would have gone to Torah school in the synagogue, would have known this. Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, Solomon warns us. It says, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. For better it is that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. Solomon says, hey, it's a whole lot better for people to say, hey, come, come sit at the head table rather than you come sit at the head table and then get embarrassed in front of any, everybody to be moved lower. Notice what Jesus says back in our text in verse 8. When you're bidden to a wedding. All right, so picture a wedding here. I know it's different than the way they did it. But you come to the wedding reception and there's always a head table, right? Now, who sits at the, wed- the head table? The bride, the groom, the wedding party. But let's say you're like, man, I'm, I'm really tight with the, with, the, with the groom. Like, he and I go way back. Obviously, I should sit at the head table. So you, you, you slip out of the wedding ceremony just a few seconds early. You run to the banquet hall, and you grab a seat. You're like, I okay, bride and groom, their seat's labeled. I'm sitting right here next to the groom. This is going to be great. And there's already the, the, the salad set out there on the table. You just go ahead and like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just start eating. You start eating the salad that's there. There's the, the food's already coming out. You drink the sweet tea. 
And then in comes the wedding party, ladies and gentlemen, the bride and the groom, and in they come, and you're sitting at their table. You're sitting in the best man's seat. And the MC has to come up to you. He puts the microphone down and is making that whistling sound. He says, excuse me, you're sitting in the best man's seat. Here you are up in front of the whole room. And the MC makes you stand up. And it's like, you're going to have to find somewhere else to sit. Well, we've got a problem. All the other seats are taken. So here you go wandering around everybody staring at you like, what an idiot, right? Like, what were you thinking? Who does this guy think he is? And you end up having to go sort of grab a, a folding chair down the hallway by the kitchen and you're absolutely embarrassed. Now, that would be embarrassing in our society. That would have been absolutely devastating in a shame-honor society where everything is about how you are viewed by other people. That's the illustration Jesus says. Now, that kind of pride is distasteful. We've seen that before. People who think that they're super important, you're like, come on, dude, you are not that important. We see that, and it is ugly. We see that kind of pride, it is embarrassing. We see that kind of pride... And it will come back and burn you in the end. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So verse 10, Jesus says, here's what you should do instead. But when you're bidden, go and sit in the lowest room. And then we think, when you read room, you're thinking like a room with walls. The idea is the seat, the couch. Go sit at the the end of the table, not at the place where the wedding party sits. Because here's what's going to happen if you voluntarily humble yourself. They're going to be like, dude, you're in the wedding party. Come up to the, this table, and everyone will be like, wow, look, look, this guy's getting to go sit with the bride and groom. He says, you'll be, you'll be praised. So notice there's, a, there's, a, there's an alternative here. Verse 9 says, if you exalt yourself, you will have shame. You see that word shame in verse 9? Verse 10 says, instead, you will have worship. The word there is glory. So you will either be embarrassed and shamed, or you will be honored before people, depending on how you behave. Verse 11, now Jesus makes the point. Parables usually have a point. Here's the point. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, will be humiliated, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. Being humble and being humiliated are two very different things, right? One is voluntary, the other is involuntary, and the latter is often the result of your pride. He's drawing out now a universal lesson here. He's saying that You right now, whoever is exalting himself right now in their lives, putting themselves forward, relying on their own works, pointing to their self-righteousness, will be in the future, notice, shall be future tense, abased. And notice this passive, the idea, this is called a theological passive, will be abased by God. So you're proud now in this life, look at me, I'm important. Jesus is saying on judgment day, you will be judged. That's what he is saying, contrast between present behavior and your eternal judgment. This is not just a moral lesson about, hey, when you go to dinner parties, be a good guest. By the way, if you go to a dinner party, be a good guest, right? Humility is always a winsome virtue. But we're talking about something far more pervasive. Jesus is not just giving us good social etiquette. He's not doing Emily Post like, hey, here's how to behave when you go to a wedding. He's giving us eternal truth, By the way, he's not just saying, here's a good way how to get forward in life. Pretend to be humble, and then people will promote you. He's not doing kind of a Dale Carnegie, be nice to people, and they'll be nice to you kind of routine. He's saying, you need to be genuinely humble before God, because your salvation depends upon it. Why do I say that? Jump over a a couple of pages to Luke 18. Jesus uses the exact same saying and gives it even more specificity, even more detail. Luke chapter 18. Verse 9, and he spake this parable unto certain that, notice, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So here's these people who are trusting in their own works, their own efforts, their own righteousness to be right with God. Now he tells a story about two people who pray. There's a publican who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's a Pharisee who goes to God and tries to impress God with all of his efforts. Now look at verse 14. I tell you this man publican, the sinful man, the wicked man, the drug dealer, the, the, the person we would look at as, as reprehensible, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. In light of this, we can say what Jesus is describing in Luke 14. You humble yourself and say, God, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. My works won't cut it. I deserve your judgment. I fall on the mercy of Christ. He says, that person will be glorified and exalted and forgiven and justified on Judgment Day. And the person who says, God, I'm pretty good. I'm not, I'm not like other people are. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. And you'll accept me on Judgment Day. He says, that person 
who is trusting even for just one millisecond, one of their works, he says, that person will be condemned on Judgment Day. What is being described here is, he's giving lessons about being a guest, but really what he's telling us is, if you want to be a guest at God's banquet, I I want to be a guest at the banquet of heaven, an absolutely necessary, indispensable requirement for entrance is humility, is saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize a saving faith is definitionally humble. This is why people have such a hard time with salvation by grace through faith, right? If I say, yeah, it's faith, but I'm a moral person, then I can, I can take some pride in that. Paul asks this question, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? The law of works, nay, the, the, the law of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what boast. Question for you, in what are you trusting this morning to gain access for yourself to God's banquet? What are you trusting in for your salvation? If, if any part of that answer is anything that you have done, you will not be granted access. All right? That, that's really serious. If it's, well, I did this thing. Right? I said these words. I, I, I went under some water somewhere. I joined a church. I took communion. I helped an old lady cross the street one time. I, I fixed a roof for someone. You're trusting in yourself. That's pride. Now, for those who have been granted access to God's banquet, humility is one of the marks of, the, of a Christian. Now, listen, none of us are humble all the time. We deal with indwelling sin, and one of the works of the flesh is pride. Christian is one who goes to war against that pride. One of the ways you know, like, how do I know that I'm saved, is there is a growth in humility. Now, here's the irony about humility. If I'm thinking about the fact that I'm humble, I'm no longer humble because humility is self-forgetting. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, you know, we, thinking, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility arises from seeing my condition before God, confessing my dependence upon God, and putting my attention on God. That is what is going to fuel humility, not focusing on myself, saying I'm going to try really hard to be humble, to say I'm going to see Jesus in all of his glory to such an extent that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Kingdom hospitality honors the humble. You want to be a guest at the kingdom banquet? You must come humbly through the wicked gate, through repentance. So we practice hospitality towards each other. There's certainly application here. We need to be humble in the ways that we treat each other. We don't come into someone's house being like, all right, I demand the best and the finest, and you're serving me on paper plates? What? No, we come in with humility, and we accept what is offered, and we're not there to critique what people do for us, but to simply enjoy and say thank you for what they have done. Okay, a third characteristic of kingdom hospitality. Kingdom hospitality values the unvalued. It honors the humble. Third, kingdom hospitality includes the excluded. It includes the excluded. Now, verses 12 to 14, Jesus now will address the host. So he's addressed the guest being like, guys, quit clamoring for the best seats in the house. Be humble. Humility is required to enter the banquet heaven, banquet hall of heaven. Now he's going to address the one who bade him, the host, the the homeowner, the one who was putting on the party. He says, when you make a dinner or a supper, okay, two two different words here. Basically, we would distinguish there's a difference between having someone over for lunch and having them over for dinner. There's sort of more formality for dinner. Uh, A banquet is a little different than a luncheon. Uh, We understand that different kinds of meals. He says, don't call your friends, your family, your rich neighbors. Now, he's not saying don't ever call them. Uh, When you say call, that means invite. We saw back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had dinner with some of his friends, Mary and Martha. Jesus enjoyed the hospitality of friends, right? He had dinner with Peter, and he had meals with his disciples. The Last Supper was just his closest followers, so he's not forbidding having friends over. I think what we, the way we could word this is don't just invite your friends. Don't just invite your rich neighbors. Don't just invite people who can do a good turn for you. I noted earlier that the ancient world's etiquette was built on reciprocity, right? And this was this entire web all the way from the lowest person in the empire all the way to the Roman emperor, what we might say quid pro quo, this idea of I'll do something for you, you do something for me. In the ancient world, the idea of a gift with no strings attached was completely foreign. The idea that you would just do something out of generosity was always like, hey, you're doing that so that five years from now you can get a favor from me. You ever hear someone say, well, so-and-so owes me a favor. 
there's nothing wrong with, 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 with people doing things in return. But what Jesus is pushing back against is if I always invite people over so I can get something in return, if I always give a good, good gift so I can get one in return, I'm not really practicing hospitality. Right? I'm not really doing it out of generosity. So he says, when you, when you have a dinner, look at verse 13. When thou makest a feast, when you have a banquet, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. These were all the segments of society that the Pharisees would have looked down their long pharisaical noses at. They would have looked at them and been like, well, if you had been right with God, he wouldn't have judged you with that. If you'd made better choices in life and not walked out in front of that donkey, you wouldn't be lame today. So that's your fault. That's your problem. You're definitely not coming to my house. There were laws in the Old Testament that barred certain people from coming to the temple, right? If you had certain kind of injuries, certain kind of disabilities, just for the sanctity of the house. These were people who would have been shut out of many aspects of the social and religious life of the day. Jesus says, those are the ones that you invite. Guess what? They're poor. They don't have a house to invite you back to. They're maimed and lame. They can't put on a big dinner and have you over. They're blind. They can't appreciate all your fancy decorations because they're blind. He says, invite people over who would normally be excluded, who would normally be on the outs, people who can't do a good thing for you in turn. Notice what he says in verse 14. And thou shalt be blessed. Truly happy and admired and envied. Notice again, future tense. The blessing's not necessarily right now, though there is a joy in, in being generous. It's so much fun, right? If you've ever practiced generosity and you've done it anonymously, you're like, man, I know so-and-so has this need, and I'm going to... And then you hear them in prayer meeting, like, I've got to praise, like, my bill was... Pay-. And you're just like, yeah, that's awesome. You get to be part of that. But Jesus is saying, even if you don't get that, if you don't even, if, even if you don't get the recognition, even if you don't get the gift in return you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. God will reward you in the end. So so when you practice kingdom hospitality, there's some people you, you are not supposed to include. Don't just include those who can serve you in return. Rather, include those who can't. Now, why? Why should we do that? I said in the introduction, it's called kingdom hospitality because it's modeled on the kingdom of God. In our very next section here, verses 15 to 24, down in verse 21, this parable that's clearly illustrating the call of the gospel, the servant goes out and invites who? Who's he supposed to go and get? The poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. Guess what? That's us. We should do the same because that's what God has done for us. In Romans 15, verse 7, Paul writes, Welcome, accept one another as Christ has welcomed you. Isn't that amazing? When we were welcomed into God's family, when you became a believer in Jesus, when you repented and believed, you didn't have to go and do a bunch of things. We come out just as I am. And we come in with all of our mess, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our guilt, all of our shame. We lay it at the foot of the cross and we're welcomed. In the same way, we should welcome others into our lives, into our homes, not the ones who can just do a good thing in return, not just those that we have immediate identity with, I get it's easy to have people over for a meal that you're like, they're a lot of fun to be with. Nothing wrong with that. But also include the people who you're like, I haven't clicked with them. Or this person, their personality kind of grates a little bit with me. Or this person, man, I've never had them over. Or it's going to be inconvenient. Or these people are a different ethnicity than I am. Or they come from a different national background than I do. Invite them, the ones that you wouldn't normally gravitate towards. So think about the people that you know really well in our church. Hey, there's probably, you know, a half dozen people you know really well. That's great. We should, we should be having some of our closest friendships within the body of Christ. But think outside that circle a little ways. Who are some people you don't know super well? Maybe they're from a different age bracket than you are. You're, you're older or you're younger, and you just haven't had a chance to connect with them. You're in a different Sunday school class. You're in a different life you know, station in life where you've got kids and they don't, or vice versa. Those are the ones to reach out to. Or the people in your neighborhood and the people who everyone else is kind of like, ah, oh, they're tough. Invite them. See, see what we're talking about here. This is, this is radical because this is what God has done for us. By the way, we're called to hospitality in Romans 12, verse 13. We're called to hospitality in 1 Peter 4 and verse 9. We're called to hospitality in, in Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2. If you are not practicing hospitality, you are sinning. Right? If the Bible commands us to do it and we don't do it, we're sinning. 
So that's why we're doing, by the way, the summer hospitality challenge. It's not just a gimmick. It's a way for us to sort of nudge one another towards greater obedience, to say, let me find some people who I haven't gotten to know. Let's, let me ha start having people over to the home. Now, understand this hospitality does not definitionally just mean have people into my house for a meal. Like, I think that's sort of the most basic way. But be creative about it. There's not just one way. It just means love of strangers. How can I love and get to know someone that I don't know? This can be as creative as you are. Right? So you're like, hey, I don't have a great home to do this in. Okay, well, I know a really awesome coffee shop, and I'm going to have people come down there and, and meet down there. Or we're going to go to a park and have a picnic. Uh, food doesn't necessarily have to be involved. Coffee does. I'm, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. But getting people together include the excluded. Can we come into a final Final characteristic of, of kingdom hospitality. Kingdom hospitality invites the uninvited. We read verses 15 to 24. And here sort of the meat just kind of falls off the bone in light of what we have been saying. Jesus is talking about there's this banquet, the, the, the kingdom banquet in the, in the final state in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Someone brings it up in verse 15. The Jews thought of the, the kingdom of God. Like a great banquet, Brian read Isaiah 55, come and eat and drink. Isaiah 25 and verse 6 compares the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom to a great wine feast, eating, drinking aged wine. Now, I'm not a wine drinker, I'm a teetotaler. But that would have been saying the finest and the best of the best. That's the picture of the kingdom of God. It's enjoyment, it is pleasure, it is delight, it is laughter. So the guy's like, hey, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, the assumption here is, man, it's going to be us. We're, we're Jews, after all. We're descendants of Abraham, after all. We're the ones who have the law and the prophets. We're already in. We've already gotten our invitation. We have, we have punched our ticket. So Jesus tells a story. Verse 16, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. So here's a great man making a great feast, inviting a great crowd. And a servant went out at supper time to them that were invited and said, Come, for all things are now ready. Now, in the ancient world, they don't have text messages. They don't have reminders to set on your phone. The way you would have done this is when you were going to throw a big feast, you would have given two notices. First, you'd go out to all the people you wanted to invite and be like, Hey, sometime in beginning of July, we're going to have this big banquet. Just, just be ready, and, and I'm going to go home. And then you'd go get everything ready, and you would line everything up. All those people would give a commitment that they were coming. When the meal was finally ready to go, you would then send out this servant to say, hey, guys, the dinner is tonight. Come on out. It's ready. It's going to happen. There's two tiers of invitation. People get advance notice, and then you come back around to, 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 to usher them into the meal. This clearly is a picture of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They had advance notice. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophecies. They had the law. They had all the pictures saying, Messiah is going to come. The king is going to come. Now, finally, the day of the banquet comes, and Jesus comes on the scene saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The banquet that you have been waiting for is here. I'm the king. Repent and believe the gospel. They reject him. See, you're, you're operating by the power of demons. We don't want anything to do with you. In fact, they would even crucify him. They would reject him. So verse 18, they all begin to make excuses. Now, here's the thing about these excuses. They're, they're lame, right? It's one thing to say, I can't come, I'm literally in the ICU right now from a car accident. Okay, that's, that's a legit excuse. But this one about, like, hey, I just bought a house, but I didn't actually see it, so I need to go look at the house. Um, that's not a good way to do real estate, like to go buy houses that you haven't seen. Like, I need to go look at land, I bought it. You would always check it before you buy it. Or buying five oxen. I just bought an 18-wheeler semi-truck. I haven't looked at it yet, I need to go check it out, therefore I can't come to dinner. These are just excuses. I just got married, can't come. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Your bride might actually kind of like going to a fancy dinner, right? Like, this is, this, is not a, this is not a good excuse. These are excuses that basically say to the host, we despise you. My land, my oxen, my family are more important than the host. By the way, if you, you look through Luke's gospel, Luke will come back over and over again to the dangers of materialism and misplaced priorities. Just look down at verse 26. If any man come, come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using hyperbole to say, either you love me first or not at all. Right? That's it. it I demand to be Lord over everything. And these people are saying, hey, our, our land, our oxen, our family, more important than coming to the banquet, more important than responding to the invitation. By the way, notice how simple the invitation is. Come. 
It's simple. It doesn't say jump through hoops. Just show up. Just come in faith and repentance and you will be forgiven. And they rejected. Everything's ready, beloved. Everything is ready. Jesus Christ has died. He said it is finished. The debt has been paid. The, the, the doors to heaven have been thrown open. You just got to walk through it. The gift is being proffered. You just have to take it by faith. And yet millions today reject the invitation. Listen, when you say something is more important than God, going fishing today is more important than gathering with the saints. Scrolling Facebook is more important than getting into the the book, into the Word of God. Hanging on to my career and my job is more important than following Christ. Going to soccer games for my kids is more important than, than bringing them to where they will hear the Word of God. What does that communicate? Those things are more important than God. Why did these people not come to the banquet? Simple answer, they did not want to. Let me just give you a really simple truth. We do what we want most. I want to read the Bible, but you don't do it. That means the thing you're doing instead is what you really want to do. Just quit lying to yourself. Quit being deceptive. And and these guys are all making polite excuses. By the way, that's how the Pharisees operated. They drew near with their mouth, but their heart was far from God. Be honest and say, the issue here is not the oxen. It's not the land. It's not the wife. It's that I don't love this master. That's what needs to change. So much better to be honest about the real issues, right? To say, this is what's really going on. I don't want the master. I don't want his feast. Many will foolishly reject eternal joy so they can experience the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. These guys missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime to go have a banquet like this. would have been a big deal. Instead, you're going to go home and eat some burnt flatbread. When you could have had a feast with the fatted calf, that's sin and it's insane. Sin will say, come here and enjoy sin. It's going to be great where God's like, no, I'm offering you eternal joy. And you're like, yeah, I'll take the five-minute pleasure. It's crazy, it's insane, and it warps our mind, and it doesn't make sense. Jesus does not demand that we sell our land, kill our oxen, or give up on marriage. He simply says, I'm going to be first place over those. Is he first place over the land, the oxen, the marriage? Is he first place over your possessions and your relationships? So here's the invited. They don't want to come. So verse 21, he sends the servants to the uninvited. These were the people who did not get the prior notice. He's using the illustration of a ancient banquet where you would invite people in your same social strata. Now he's saying, those people have despised me. I'm going to go to the people below my my level, the the, the blind, the lame. So he says to the servant, go out into the streets and the lanes, so the wide streets and the back alleys of the city. Go out within city limits and invite those people. And I think what this is speaking of, Jesus and his ministry, who did he invite? Publicans and sinners. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners. Who made up Jesus' disciples? Fishermen. Shepherds, publicans, sinners, prostitutes. The people that the Pharisees would, would, would reject, he invites. Yet they're still Jewish. They're still from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 22, yet there is still room. Oh, the grace of God is more ready to forgive and to save than we are to be forgiven or to be saved. What grace. So verse 23, the Lord said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges. So initially, there's this group of invited people. They reject it. So now he goes out into the, the back alleys of the city. Now he says, go outside of city limits to the hedgerows and to the roadways. Luke's audience, Theophilus, Gentile Christian, would have heard himself in this. He says, I'm one of those ones who was outside of the commonwealth of Israel. I wasn't one of the ones with the prior notice. I was a stranger, and I don't deserve it. Now, why do these guys get in? Verse 24, here's the reason. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. None of the ones who were originally invited will will enjoy it. You read the book of Acts. You find out that what happens, the apostles go out with the gospel. And what happens, the Jewish people reject it. Acts 13, 46, Paul says, you have deemed yourself unworthy. We go to the Gentiles now. Romans 11, Paul gives an extended apologetic that God has temporarily set aside Israel. The gospel is going to the nations, and one day he is going to save Israel and bring it all together. It's easy to become smug and self-righteous as Christians, especially when we compare ourselves to society at large, right? There's some crazy stuff going on in our world and be like, well, look at what those people are doing over there, and it's the month of June, and it's Pride Month, and we we rightly see right and wrong. But it's easy to become smug and self-righteous. If you feel that at times, you struggle with that, remember this, you only got in because someone else rejected it. You're only in the banquet hall because 
Those who were previously invited rejected it. You only get a seat in the restaurant because someone else stormed out after having a feud with the chef. You're not there because you're special. You're not there because you're important. You're there because God is gracious. So therefore, fear, right? If he lopped off the natural branches, be fearful lest he cut you off also, Paul says in Romans 11. Be not high-minded. Don't think that you are somehow better than those other ones. Just compel them to come. Now, that's not, that's not as used to excuse force. He's not saying use force or twist arms. What he is saying, be persuasive. Beloved, kingdom hospitality invites the uninvited, those who have not yet responded to the gospel call. The ultimate aim of kingdom hospitality is to point people to Jesus. Is to invite people not just into your, your living room, not just into your home, but into his home, right? Into his family. When was the last time that you intentionally developed a relationship or had a conversation to speak the good news of Jesus into someone's life? When was the last time? Last month? Have there been a, has there been a conversation like that in the last year? Now, I'll be transparent with you. I struggle to have those conversations. Sometimes find myself sort of isolated from being... In, in, in conversations and in contact with people who don't know Jesus. We've got to be intentional to go out and to have those conversations and to plead and to call people to repentance and to faith. What does kingdom hospitality look like? It looks like this. It's valuing the unvalued. That's what Jesus did. It honors the humble. If you're going to enter the banquet hall of heaven, you must be humble. It's going to include the excluded. That's how we should practice our hospitality. And it invites the uninvited to Christ, to Christ. So let me plead with you. Have you responded to the king's invitation? Is there a place that you can look in your life and say, yes, this is where I turn from my sins and I'm following Jesus? If not today, I beg of you to come to him in brokenness and repentance. If you're a Christian, are you extending the king's invitation? Are you extending the king's invitation? Are you throwing open the doors of your home so you can get people at your table that you can build a relationship with? Are there ways that you can practice kingdom hospitality? Is it be creative? One of the questions this week, list out five ways that you can do this. So just, it's going to be more than we'll go out to eat and have someone over. We need to be creative in how we do this. And who will you include? Who will you include? May we practice kingdom hospitality to the glory of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and our homes to those who don't know Christ. Would you help us